0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I'm talking with author Michael Denzel Smith. Michael's second book, Stakes is High, Life After the American Dream, came out in 2020 and was easily one of the best things that I read last year. It was also the winner of the Kirkus Prize in nonfiction. I cannot recommend this book enough. Michael's first book was Invisible Man, got the whole world watching, and he has also written pieces for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and so many other publications. Google him. He is now the host of Open Form*, a podcast on Lit Hub Radio, where he talks about movies with his author friends, people like, friend of the podcast, Kiese Lehman and Aro Kwan. I'm so thrilled that Michael is joining us today for a conversation about literature and abolition. The Stacks book club pick for June is The Undying, A Meditation on Modern Illness by Anne Boyer. We will discuss the book on the show on Wednesday, June 30th with Michael Denzel Smith. If you didn't know, The Stacks has a bonus community of book lovers over on Patreon. We have a monthly video book club where we all discuss The Stacks book club pick for that month. We also have weekly check-ins about what we're reading, plus members of The Stacks pack get discounts on merch, priority and ask The Stacks, and other fun perks. I also want to say, and this is very important, is that Patreon makes it possible for me to make this podcast week in and week out. So if you love the show, even if you don't care about perks, please consider joining us on Patreon. It's $5 a month and it goes a long way to making sure that I have the resources I need to make this podcast. So head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. I want to say a special thank you to our newest members of the Sax Pack. That includes Kayla Abiade, Douglas Cronk, Maurice E. Jefferson, Caitlin, Claire Puduka, Laura Hayden, Kate L. Olson, Allison, Eric M. Peterson, Stacy S., and Julie McDowell. Thank you all so much for making the show possible. All right, I'm thrilled to introduce you all to the brilliant and thoughtful Michael Denzel Smith. All right, everybody. I'm very excited today. I am joined by the author of probably my most favorite book I read in 2020, which was Stakes is High, and the author is Michael Denzel Smith. Michael, welcome to The Stacks.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Tracy.
0: I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, This episode is airing right now the first week of June, but we're having this Mm -hmm. conversation on April 21st, which for folks who have a short memory is the day after the Derek Chauvin um, verdict. And- Mm. Uh, I feel like we will talk about that later, but I just want to give folks a sense of where you and I are in the space and time because, you know, in five weeks, people are going to be like, what are they talking about? (laughs) Like, there's going to be a million other things people are thinking about. But that being said, let's kind of start at the beginning, which is like, can you just tell us about yourself, where you are, like other things besides your bio, which is what folks are going to have just heard in the intro?
1: Oh, uh, you know, I'm currently sitting in my apartment as I've done for the past year (laughs) in Brooklyn, New York, uh, where I moved. Oh man, I'm coming up on seven years living in New York. Uh, I'm originally from Virginia beach, Virginia. Uh, We landed there because my dad was in the Navy. It's a big military town. It's basically the economy of Virginia beach, other than like the tourists that come during the summer, Uh, which always baffled me because Virginia Beach is not an attractive (laughs) beach. It's it's this ugly Atlantic Ocean, brown, green water. And like the sands are not interesting at all. And we have so many surfers around and I'm like, there are no waves to surf. I don't get this.
0: I have definitely never been to Virginia Beach, but I'm a California person. So like Mm -hmm. East Coast beaches in general, like aren't really my vibe at all.
1: There's nothing to them. There's nothing really that interesting. I mean, here in New York, we go to the beach every summer, and we just kind of have to like pretend. Yeah, we have to pretend <laughs> <laughs> like it's actually a good beach. It's not. Oh my it's god. Not. I
0: I lived in New York for eight years. I don't think I ever went like to the beach. I went to Coney Island like one time, but like I don't think I ever was like, let's go to the beach.
1: I've never been to Coney Island and it took me like three years to get to the beach while living in New York. I have friends that like, like would swear by the beach, go ev- almost every day during the summer. And, the, like, and then I went and I was like, yeah, yeah. this is about what I expected. Yeah. It's not exciting at all. It's just an excuse to be outside.
0: If you're going to go to the beach and you're going to go to your favorite beach in the whole wide world, what beach are you going to?
1: Oh, man. Uh, the greatest be- like the most beautiful thing that I had seen uh, is I a few years ago when I went to Puerto Rico mm. uh, went to vieques uh, the beaches there just uh just gorgeous I mean my platonic idea of what a beach is supposed <laughs> to be like that gorgeous <laughs>
0: I cannot wait to get to travel again and go to the beach. I don't even like the beach that much, but like the thought of like sitting on a lounge chair and like reading something at the beach just seems like a dream. Uh, Yes. (laughs) How did you come to writing? Like, how did you decide you wanted to write?
1: Uh, you know, in school, it was always kind of like hearing all of my English teachers be like, "Oh, you're one of my better writers in class," uh, mm. or you know, exhibiting that. I didn't think about writing so much when I was real younger. Like, I was very into math. Um, oh. all of that. I really was. Like, I in fourth grade, we got to fractions and like adding and subtracting fractions and all of that stuff. And like, I would do that in my spare time. Like, I I would go ahead. Oh my god. And, like, <laughs> But that stopped in high school. Uh, you know, I took then I was on like in all the advanced math classes and everything, uh, and then I took a, a calculus class. It was like AP calculus or whatever. And I turned in a homework assignment, and I actually did the whole thing. And like in math, you're usually supposed to get credit for like you know at least showing your work, and right, stuff. right, right. But I did the entire thing. It was like four pages with four problems, each one taking up an entire sheet of notebook paper. And I got a zero on it. And I was like, okay, well, that no. math isn't math, isn't my thing. This is
0: done. We're done here. Thank we're, you. We're done here. Oh, my um, God.
1: But always in, in my English classes was sort of like told, you know, you're one of my stronger writers and all this stuff. I didn't take it that seriously. Uh, but then I got to college and my first year, I just kind of, I was very... People would say shy, but I don't, I never thought of myself as shy. I just like liked who I liked and they, you know, and just didn't really engage with other people. And it was hard for me to sort of find those people that I was really with. And, and, and then it was like, okay, here's this thing that I kind of like doing, which is writing. This will maybe help me find the people that I, I want to mm. be around and spend my time with and grow relationships with. So I, I joined the school newspaper and that just set me on a path of like being so heavily involved with the, the newspaper and just like working with words and doing all that. And also had a, a dear English professor, uh, basically all four years uh, I was in school, uh, Dr. Foster, who he passed away like um, almost four years ago now, but uh, he saw the potential in me in a way that nobody had. And also was like, but could also see that I was ready to squander it and wanted Mm. to push me and made sure that like he put the right books in my hands, that he told me like what my talent was and made sure that I wasn't going to waste it. Uh, And so having him in my corner during those four years, uh, really pushed me in that direction. And I really, and I still didn't even know that I would do the kind of writing that I I do now, uh, you know, after, school four years I, I say i i've stressed the four years because i didn't graduate <laughs> um, okay that's a whole other story um but after that i really thought i wanted to get into screenwriting uh, like i spent a lot of time sort of trying to learn how to write movies and like watching lots and lots of movies and uh you know looking up Online, like what a screenplay looks like, reading through them, trying to, you know, imagine worlds and stories and things like that. I thought that's what I wanted to do. Uh, the first one that I wrote, which I actually found a, a printed out copy of recently, I was oh like, God. I'm. Not- such a hoarder because just like have <laughs> uh and it's not good and obviously it's not good. I wrote it when I was 21 and I'm not like the <laughs> kind of prodigy when it comes to, to these things. Um but you know it it came I did it during a very tough time in my life, a very severe depression and sort of kept me going during that time. So I I hold it holds a special place in my heart, but what I was then realizing um was that I was just like fascinated by ideas and like the communication of ideas. And I was trying to find different mediums for doing it, uh, you know, and then Twitter was coming along This is around like 2010 ish, where I'm spending a lot of time on Twitter and I'm making connections with different like editors and writers and things and, you know, sending stuff to people asking if they look at it. Uh, and then, you know, falling back on what I was doing in, in college, which is writing opinion uh, pieces. Mm. And so I started jumped into that, uh, you know, starting out with some, a place that doesn't exist anymore. It was sort of like one of our sort of African-American news and opinion sites called the Loop 21. Um, and then writing for the Griot and the Root, and then, you know, going to write for the Guardian and the Nation and just sort of building, right. you know, more and more relationships and also my my skills and being able to be able to do all this. So it just took me, you know, that's a, a long winded way of uh, getting into how I got to to writing, but <laughs> it's just, you know, I, I I'm a product of the, the internet era, really, you know, blogging all of, and, and stuff like that. Like I, I started a blog about hip hop when I was in, in college because that, you know, that right. was what like consumed me during that time. Uh, I'm I'm just old now, so I don't know anything about like what what, what music is. You're is. not old. You're younger I, than me. I hate it. I I mean I'm I'm I know we're young like in a, our actual years, but in terms of culturally, it's just like I am yeah. so far removed from what like, we're what, washed. We're super we're washed. Super Do they washed. even
0: say that now? I don't it even think kids say washed. Stomach. It's like <laughs> such an old way. <laughs> oh my god, I love it. The way that I actually first ever heard about you, this is like so random, but I'm going to tell you because I think you'll like it, is that um, Jamila Lemieux, her daughter, Minnie Mila, loves you. And Mm -hmm. I remember that I was following Jamila on Instagram when your first book came out. And there she put pictures of you and Minnie Mila like together. And I was like, oh, my God, this book looks so good. And I love that this little girl loves this
1: little boy.
0: Not that you're a little boy, but like it was just so you guys were so cute together. And that was like the first time I ever saw your name or like clocked you. And so and that was probably what, like four years ago, five years ago.
1: Oh, God, almost five years ago now. Yeah, the first book was almost five years ago. Uh Yeah, that was my my pre-launch event that I invited uh, a bunch of folks to read with me as I debuted some work from the book. And uh, Jamila was one of the people that I invited because Jamila, fantastic writer and like had done so much for me in terms of like helping me to write for Ebony uh, consistently and getting me paid and all of those things. Uh, (laughs) And she's fostered so many careers, uh, in that capacity, but is also a writer in her own right. Uh, and I invited Jamila to, to read, uh, and, you know, she just didn't have childcare that evening and brought a little Naima, Mini Mila with her. Uh, and Naima had to be like two or three, like if that, at that point. Yeah, she was little. Just sort of running around, and uh, I was I was reading, and she just was like, you know, on stage with me. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> so night. So cute.
0: Um, and then I we have to talk about your book, Stakes Is High. I am obsessed with it. I think it is so good for people who have not read it yet. Just like I. I talk about a lot of books, but I don't talk about a lot of books like this. Like I don't love books like this. And so if you haven't read it yet, you should pick it up. It's so short also, which is like sort of incredible that you were able to pack all of that in there. Um, I guess I'm trying to figure out where we should start, but the book is sort of about Americanism and Mm -hmm. being American and being critical of what that means. Mm -hmm. and like, questioning what that means and questioning sort of what America, being American, U.S. American means on a big scale versus like being a, being a person who lives in America, like on, on a personal level. And it's sort of like questions about that and it gets into abolition. And I mean, it gets into a lot of things, but it starts, uh, the, book, the book literally starts uh, with the election night of Donald Trump. Yeah. And so I'm just I guess my first question is sort of with a book that deals with someone who's so polarizing and feels like of such a specific moment. Did you have a hard time deciding if you were going to even name him in the book or like how were you going to future proof the book against him?
1: Yeah, I thought about that part a lot. So the future proofing of it all of the the sort of older texts that i've read that very much speak directly to the moment that they're in right. like will name check like all of the things and, and tra- traumas and atrocities and people who, who live through that time and it's not as if that doesn't date it in some way but it also becomes a capsule right like you understand who the major players here are and what those characters, if we sort of speak of them in that way, how they're meaningful to the story unfolding. Uh, so it wasn't. I, I at, a, at some point I was I just realized like it's not preventing this from being engaged in the future, especially if the ideas that I'm speaking to I know because uh, because of the way that this country operates will be relevant in, later. Right. Um, right. And that you know it's it's sort of uh in its way it's sort of a pre reckoning right uh with mm. that the Donald Trump era with the donald trump presidency uh it It lives so much in that moment to sort of wrestle the anxieties down and say like what this has made me think about in terms of that u s American identity and how it is forged and what I was observing what lots of us were observing around uh particularly white American liberals who just mm-hmm. like couldn't fathom this and just like, we're losing their shit. <laughs> like we're just like, right. how could this happen to my country? How could this be? How could this country elect him? And for all of the rest of us going, well, of course this happened, right? Like how, right. What have you not been paying attention that like, have you not read our history? Have you not understood where we come from and what values this country actually stands on? Um, right. And so, so I, I hope to, uh, you know, balance that out. They're saying, you know, there was the particular moment that we were living in, but I always wanted that to be grounded in uh, the history and then completely forward looking and saying, you know, here, here are the things that are make up this complex thing that we call the American identity or that I'm calling the American identity here. Uh, and it is this, this time or that time of those four years should have been a time to ask, is this who we want to be? And I don't know that we actually answered that question. Uh, I think we sought relief. We sought an escape. Like, in, like a lot of people got organized around just sort of getting rid of Donald Trump. Like, just like, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> sorry, the example that came to mind is just being like, you know, you got rid of a really terrible, terrible pimple, right? Like, it's just like, right. that was, Like, and I say this as someone who's just recently gotten into like skincare a whole bunch. It's like, you know, <laughs> pimple pops up. It's like, yeah, you got to get rid of that because it's an obvious blemish. But right. what are you doing to prevent the future ones, right? And and that sounds right, so, right, right, it's right. so incredibly like reductive and even kind of silly, even as I say it, right? But sure, uh, but it works. It's, but it's the way that we we we, we sort of handle things in, in this country. It's like there's some extreme version of uh our not stated principles, but our lived principles, our lived reality mm. comes to the fore, and we're like, Oh, we gotta do something about this. But everything that produced it remains. And so if you're never asking those questions about like what what actually makes us? What, what do we act? What does our record actually show? You're never going to get to any real solutions about this. You're, you're going to repeat a Donald Trump later. You know it, it's it's bound right. to happen if those things aren't addressed on the front end.
0: Right. So you asked just now, sort of like, did is this who we want to be? And I feel like one of the things that I'm realizing is that. The problem with, like, those kinds of questions is that, like, there isn't a consensus because a lot of people Mm -hmm. do want to be this way and a lot of people don't want to be this way. And then there's a lot of people who want to be part of this way but also part of a new way and, like, Mm -hmm. aren't willing or ready to commit. And I feel like, at least for me, like, how can we move forward in making change without the people who aren't ready to commit, you know? Like, or can we?
1: (sighs) Man, is it, it, I wish I were a better political strategist when it comes to stuff like <laughs> that. I don't, I don't know, you know, like my my objective is to, to simply say and I, I have a very particular audience in mind or had a particular audience in mind with writing stakes is high. And I thought very much about those people that were newly activated right in the wake of the election mm-hmm, of Donald mm-hmm. Trump. People who could clearly see that something was wrong, they they knew that this was not this was not the way that human beings should be going about the the project of self governance, right? Like something was mm. off, but they didn't have any deeper analysis than that. And so my objective was reaching those people and just so. And the thing is, like I think uh, with stakes though. I wasn't coddling those people. It was very directly confrontational. Definitely not. (laughs) You know, uh, to say like, "Look, you you felt good for too long, and not recognize the like the machinations of oppression in this country, and like this is just one result of it, and you've benefited from those machinations." Like Mm -hmm. that's that's a big part of it is like not understanding where you've benefited from all of this and so my challenge to those folks in particular were to look at this now I'm of a belief that like you got to gather your people this is something uh, Brittany Cooper is always saying and so she's a the black feminist theorist who like her most popular work is Eloquent Rage right. uh, and a lot of that book is her not a lot of the book but part of that book and when she talks to or about white feminists is saying that white feminists got to go get their people because they are in closer proximity to anti-feminist white people than she is. And they have the personal connections to be able to speak to those people and help them along and like help them to understand things. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. when I'm speaking to sort of like the newly activated white liberal, I'm seeing that as part of my audience and that's someone that I have access to but who I don't have access to is their relatives who they're afraid to go to Thanksgiving dinner with and like afraid to hear their comments and speak up in response to them and challenge their ideas. I'm saying to them, you're listening to me. What I need you to do is make that confrontation. I'm making confrontation with you to agitate you toward confrontation with those folks because that's the only way that I'm that I'm going to reach them. Like, is through a proxy, right? Right, um, right. And so I think I guess I think of it in that way: is just like, who is in the audience that I can speak to? that can then translate that message to someone else that's in their audience. And so do I think like we move forward without those people? Probably not. Um. But what I think is, is the, the case is like we're building a recruitment, right? Like we're just making the ideas more and more attractive and like more and more irresistible. And also just like, I mean, just winning the argument over and over again. And, you know, I think you, know, you, you stayed at the top where a, a day after uh, the, the verdict and the shaven uh, trial, this is su- such a different time from any of these other uh, high profile police killings. And obviously that there was a conviction, but also the response I've seen online from people. That there are so many more people being like, this is not justice. That right. this is this is the bare minimum, and this and more people calling for abolition, and that we're pushing that conversation. We're forcing people to engage with the ideas, uh, and there are going to be people that resist it. Obviously, like that's right. part of the struggle. Um, but we're winning more and more people over to the because we're exposing so many things and like presenting ideas to them that they that are challenging and that people are receptive to because as they get more exposure to the to the way the system actually is set up the way that it's meant to work and understanding it as such then you're getting more and more converts and so i don't think that you move on uh without those people who are like vehemently oppose what you do is you convert more and more people over to your side. Now, right. I, and that's difficult work. Um, But, you know, I think we just do it from whatever position that we're in and then, you know, I'm, I'm a writer. And so I, I just try to write it as much as I can.
0: Right. It kind of in regards to the Chauvin trial and just like, I don't know. One of the things that really irritated me yesterday was sort of this like victorious um attitude that like the mainstream media or whatever like the news that i was Mm -hmm. watching on tv had Mm -hmm. like that this was like this really celebratory day um and you know i think some of my hesitation around that is because i've started thinking more and more about abolition and what that means and what Mm -hmm. that looks like and like what actually happens to derek chauvin now Mm -hmm. you know and like I don't – I actually don't like to think about that because it makes my stomach hurt and, like, mm-hmm. I don't like feeling those conflicted feelings. But all of that being said, sort of – my question is how can we celebrate these types of, like, wins, mm-hmm. if you will, and still be on a toward, towards a path towards abolition? Like, how can we do both things? Can we?
1: Yeah. I mean – I don't celebrate it, right? Like I, I sort of understand it um, as in s- situated within the context of what's on offer currently, right? Like this is right, the right, best that right, right. the system has to offer at at, at present. Uh, and
0: celebrate is a bad word. I shouldn't have said celebrate because no, I'm not no, celebrating. But like acknowledge or like take in and like be, be – It's not happy, but like feel some sense of relief maybe that there was a moment where the thing that was supposed to happen, given the system happened without, you know what I'm getting at. I just, I don't want you to think that I was like at home, like popping champagne, like super not doing that. I think that
1: there were a lot of people who were, I think that there were a lot of people who did celebrate this and who are going to continue sort of celebrating it and not just celebrating but then using this as an example of the system working yes. to show people that, oh, you can have faith in the system. It can work. And my thing is, no, the, the, still what, what has happened is not justice. And it's not even accountability, as I've seen like people saying. It's not accountability because... Uh, Chauvin hasn't taken responsibility for it. Right, he admitted to anything? He has not been engaging with the the victim and the victim's family to make amends. None of that is present, so it's not even accountability. What we have is punishment, and that's what the system has to offer. We can punish you. We can that's send all. you away, lock you in a cage for years upon years, and that is that is all that we have to offer. And so the 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 tension obviously is that we we're fighting for recognition of the fact that black life has value and that should be taken right. seriously by the systems that are that are in place but the system is not set up to uh acknowledge that value because it relies on the devaluing of black life in order for it to operate in order for it to consistently produce second class citizens that then you can extract from you know labor and wealth and what and and so forth and so And and identity. I mean, you know, part of what it is, is just being able to for some groups of people to be able to look at other groups of people and say, I'm better than them. And I have more status and all of that. Uh, So you can't expect a just outcome from an unjust system. The Mm. holding that tension in saying, okay, there was finally a correct verdict within this system that I want to abolish is just to say that there was finally one correct verdict that acknowledged that a life was taken unjustly. And then it's to say, well, every day what this system does is grind toward more and more black death. And if I, if what I ultimately want is the valuation of black life the the care for black life then abolition is the only path if you if you're looking at systems that are designed uh, as an antithesis to that you can only destroy those systems and replace them with with new systems new worlds new imaginations of how to actually care for people uh and i think you know it's it's to say i don't I'm not I would never chastise anyone for or admonish anyone for feeling relief for even celebrating necessarily because we are a messy complex of human emotions and like we are right. all reacting to what's in front of us and what we've been conditioned toward like I get all of that but what we have to be is critically engaged and have our analysis uh rooted in abolitionist principles to say I see what the system has done here and acknowledge that what it always does is sort of like make an example of one person in order to be able to uh, pacify people and then uh, then continue on to its death march. And so I resist that. I resist this as any form of justice. I resist this as any form of accountability and continue to organize, and write, and speak toward the the vision of the future that we actually want.
0: Right, 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 right. That's so good. Um, one of the things you say in the book that really stuck out to me on this second reading, um, I, I'm sure I liked it the first time, but for whatever reason, it really stuck out with me this time, is that, you know, America is obsessed with this, like, being a more perfect union, and, like, taking mm-hmm. credit for the good things that happen, and that absolve us, but, like, not wanting to resonate with any of the things that like led to that so like we're super proud of slavery abolition but like we Mm -hmm. aren't the people who perpetrated slavery for hundreds of years or like we're super excited about the 100th anniversary of the women's right to vote but like Mm -hmm. we don't really want to talk about what it took to get that and the fact that black women didn't get to vote you know much later Mm -hmm. and that popped into my head as soon as I heard the verdict and saw what was happening on social media of people like wanting to celebrate this moment of like, we did it. We got the bad police officer and being like, he's literally the first white police officer ever convicted in that state of doing this. Like, and we know mm-hmm. there have been many others in that state recently. No. So like, uh, it
1: just. Yeah. And to think about what, what it took to get there, it literally took a whole summer of the country being on fire Right? Like it took that. Right. It took an entire summer of things burning, of police stations, police cars, you know, windows being broken. All of that for this one conviction. Police kill thousands a year, or th- have killed thousands over right. years and years and years. And uh, the number of convictions is. Yo, uh, I mean, the number of charges that even get brought, I mean, I think it's less than 10% of right. police officers that are even charged, right? And then um, you get to the number of that are actually convicted, it's less than 10, not 10%, less than 10 Um right and so you, if if this is supposed to be a point at which we sit, we're sending a message that we take this seriously and that police officers need to be more mindful of their interactions with people they don't have any like the statistics just still are way stacked in their favor we can't look at one example right. of the system quote unquote working Uh, And quote unquote, holding someone accountable, uh, and then extrapolate from that, that everything is fine, right? Like you can't do one good thing, or like semi good thing, I guess, or I don't know, the the wording would be very difficult (laughs) there. But like, let's just say you can't do one good deed, uh, and then expect for that to be absolution for all of the other bad deeds that the system has perpetrated. Like it's just not possible.
0: Right. This is just like a really anecdotal story and then we'll move on. But Mm -hmm. I was, I was out with my babies at the park when the verdict came in. And so I was like watching on my phone and I was watching through MSNBC and then they had the fucking audacity to have this white guy on, in Minnesota who was like just like you know out in the park like wanting to be part of the moment being like you know I googled what can white people do to help black lives and this I did it last night because I'm I'm ready and I recognize my privilege and I was like motherfucker where were you last year when everyone in Minnesota and across the country like it was just such a crazy moment to me that I was like wait is this an interview from last summer like what is happening so I Maybe, don't know. I just. I didn't read any of
1: the <sighs> anti-racist reading list. He didn't get around to those apparently.
0: No, he didn't do anything. He just waited till his moment to come on TV and was like, let me Google this shit before
1: Joy Reid <laughs>
0: asks me a follow-up question. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm doing a hard transition. This is not very no, graceful, no, no. but you have a new podcast we have to talk about. It's about writers talking about movies, and I'm so excited. Can you just tell us a little bit?
1: It's called Open Form. It's called Open Form. Uh, you know, last year after the book came out, I had, this, you know, in releasing a book is just this huge thing. And then, you know, you've done all of this work for several years and then suddenly it's like done. And then you're like, well, what do I do next? And I right. just was so exhausted uh, by the second book. And I think a lot of the material and the heaviness of it all, I was like, I want to do something fun. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, what do I mm. like doing? I just, I love talking about movies. Like I watch a lot of movies and a lot of TV. Uh, and I was just like, I always want to have conversations with people about movies. That would be just a fantastic thing. Um, uh, and in pitching it to LitHub, where it's hosted, I just thought the angle of talking to you know other writers about movies would be something that would uh, intrigue them. And so, yeah, I've been having a lot of fun doing it. Just bringing in a lot of people that you know I love their work, and, and they get to choose the movie, which is another fun thing for me. Is it's sort of getting a peek into. Like what makes them, and like what they're interested in, what they're fascinated by, or what they hate. I love, I love a, a hate pick. Like Jesse Lehman picked Rocky Three, and it was just, he was like, "Can we do a bad movie?" I was like, "Absolutely!" And it's just like so fun <laughs> to talk about this terrible, terrible movie. Um, but yeah, and sort of, and it's never too far from like what I'm interested in generally, or what I, what people know my writing to be about, and sort of. Picking apart all of these different meanings and uh, and politics and stuff like that, but you know, it's also about like looking at movies and what they mean to us uh, and how we re- re- relate to them and what what place they they hold in our own consciousness, but like a broader consciousness as well. I think you know, just dealing with all of the different art forms that we've created as people that like influence and and reflect uh, where we are uh and you know and those ideas about who do we want to be who who are we searching for what are we what are we trying to accomplish here i think just having having a window into a lot of those different discussions has just been it's been a lot of fun for me
0: I cannot wait to listen. I also am going to write a book so that I can come on and talk about a week of their own. Thank you.
1: Oh, God. oh yes. Yeah, we can do that. You don't have to write a book. I wouldn't, I wouldn't push that That's on. my favorite
0: <laughs> movie. Yeah, okay, that's perfect. Movie I'm available at any time. I can also just <laughs> recite every single line for you whenever you're ready, like from the top all the way through. No skips.
1: I love it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. We're going to do, I didn't prep you for this, but it's the Ask the Stack segment where people write in an ask for a book recommendation. So this comes from Beverly and Beverly says, the book I usually recommend to most people is Perfect Peace by Daniel Black. Books I've read that have stayed with me have been patsy, educated, and untamed. And what these books have in common is that the characters are complicated with more complicated backstories. So based on that, what would you recommend as my next read? Okay. I also, Beverly, I don't want people to think Beverly just like wrote an email that started like that. She had a whole intro, but I took it out because like nobody wants to hear me be like, I love the podcast. Anyways. Okay. I'll go first. I'm going to give her three. You can give her one or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. really up to you. Okay. So Beverly, my first pick for you is I just finished it the other day. It's called the final revival of Opal and Nev and it's by Donnie Walton. And it is a Mm -hmm. fictionalized oral history of, um, this rock and roll duo in like the 1970s it's kind of like one of one of the rock and roll people is this black woman opal and she's like badass and then her partner is this like kind of like nerdy like weird british redheaded like musician and and it's a fake oral history so it's like you're hearing from everybody's opinions and like what's going on and it's like it's complicated and complex and the characters are great so that's one Number two, and we didn't even get to talk about this, but I wanted to, and maybe we'll get to it later, is um, called The Other Side by Lacey M. Johnson. It's one of my favorite memoirs. Um, It's pretty difficult stuff. She was kidnapped and raped by her Mm. ex-boyfriend. And the reason I said we didn't get to talk about this is because you mentioned The Reckonings um her or you mentioned one of the essays from her essay collection anyways um but I love this book I think it's really incredible and when you when Beverly when you said educated it sort of has that like hard to get through vibe but like also really good and Lacey M. Johnson is a much more skilled writer than Tara Westover so it's like not she she takes very good care of her reader And then the third one is a book we did on the podcast, um, I think, in 2019. It's called Home Fire by Camila Shamsi, and it's a retelling of um, Antigone, but it's set in England and um, America and the Middle East, and it's about these siblings, and it's really good, and the characters are complicated, and it's like sort of unputdownable. It's about as unputdownable as a novel gets for me. Um, So those are my recommendations. Michael, what do you have?
1: Uh, you know, I, I'm thinking right now, uh, that it's Brit Bennett's first novel, uh, you know, mm, the Vanishing yeah. came out last year and it sort of like took over everything. It was huge, right. but the Mothers, I that think is so really, good. it's so good. Um, and that, I think that would satisfy a lot of that, that search for these complicated characters and backstories and, you know, like some bringing in some sort of like, uh, you know, multiple voices and, you know, omniscient voices and things like that. Uh, I think that 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 would be a good read for for Beverly.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now we get to talk about your taste in books. We're going to start where we always do two books you love one book you hate.
1: Uh, two books I love, you know, I, I feel like I talk about them all the time whenever I'm in and, and that I've like <laughs> taught them. Uh, and I just can't get enough of them. Uh, I already mentioned him and I think everybody does because why not? Kiese Layman uh and heavy, which is just of like Of course I mean, how are you not? Like it's just the most incredible, incredible yeah. book. It's it's so incredible and I love Kiese. It's a, a, like it's also so uncomfortable because like Kiese is the most honest writer in the world. And some of it is just being like, should I know that? Mm-hmm. Should I be like, should I be reading that? Right. But like he's so skillful. I mean, just one of the greatest storytellers and lyricist and just like, uh, yeah, just KSA Lemons heavy. Uh And then Jasmine Ward, Men We Reaped, uh, which I think is so inventive in style and then also, like Je- like Kiese and Jasmine to me are just like the best writers on the face of the earth. Um, and the stories that she's telling there, uh, the way she's moving back and forth and making the connections between time, uh, and telling these really heart wrenching stories about the deaths of these four young men in her life, and then talking about this relationship with her father, and, and to an extent her mother as well, but like a lot of it dealing with her relationships to the men in her life um and just sort of uh, unpacking in a way like the the very complicated nature of a black woman trying to navigate those relationships to these black men and understanding herself in relation to them and them in their various forms of escape and violence and like like and she paints a very tender portrait of a father who has a lot of shit <laughs> that he you know um, I think yeah. that it was fantastic. Um, and yeah, so those are the two books I, I would say. I love a book that I hate. Oh man. I, I think I tend to put down books I hate and then forget all about them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, a book that I hate. I didn't finish it. And I'm remembering the name now, or at least looking at my bookshelf and seeing it. I was supposed to review it. I never got around to it. Uh, it's called Self-Portrait <laughs> in Black and White by Thomas Chatterton Williams. Uh, and I'll just say, I, I don't care if he ever hears it. I just don't like him as a writer. <laughs> He's just terrible. Um, right. And. And I think, you know, my problem with the book is sort of, one, stylistically, I just think he's so full of himself and thinks he's a better writer than he is. Okay. Um, and, and then, like, he's, he's doing this thing with regards to race that is just, like, such a very simple one-on-one conversation about, like, how race operates. Mm. And he's, like, saying he's opting out of, like, just defining himself as a Black person because, like, he his his wife is white and then they had a child and the child came out looking very white. And now he's like, well, is my child white or was is my child black? And like, he's like looking at the farce of race. And I'm like, that's not how this works. Right. Like, this is not how, like, right. There's no power analysis whatsoever. There's no historical analysis around like the ways in which phenotype has like been like, you know, rendered and, and then used, but there has never been the full basis on which racial oppression has ever operated. It doesn't take into account any type of mixed race people who have ever like had to identify, like, like it just doesn't do any of this work. And he thinks that he's doing something really revelatory or controversial, uh, when really he's just sort of repeating, uh, you know, completely, uh, completely discredited ideas of race theory that that we've like done away with and, and have no use for. Uh, huh. So yeah, that book's uh, self-portrait in black and white, I think is just a profoundly stupid book by just like someone who can't write that well.
0: <laughs> oh my God. I love that so much. I'm reading Yaba Blaze book um, one drop right now mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. really good and like totally the opposite of that. Yeah. Okay, what are you currently reading right now?
1: Uh, I'm reading because I'm working on an essay that uh, hopefully by the time uh, people are listening to this, it should be out. I'm reading the novels of Gil Scott Heron, which I think... uh, I think there are things that get forgotten that he did uh, because he's such right. a prolific like musician and is you know associated with his poetry and sort of being like the quote unquote godfather of rap uh, and all of that but he wrote two novels they, they were he was very young when he wrote them and you can tell um but okay. uh, the first is called The Vulture and then The Nigger Factory and one is sort of a murder mystery uh, the other deals with college and college campuses and Black, stu- black college students. Um, but yeah, I'm reading those to sort of write about like this sort of missing, often discussed part of uh, Gil Scott Heron's legacy and his work. Uh, so I'm working my way through those. Uh, I pick up random things or just stuff that I'm excited about. Like I recently finished A Little Devil in America by Hanif Abdurraqib rakib just because I read everything, I read <laughs> so everything that he writes. Yeah, he's just a fantastic writer. He's just incredible. Hanif just does. I, I I get jealous of Hanif because he does emotion way more, way better than I can do emotion. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's just oh very God, he like, understands feelings.
0: Did you have a favorite essay from that collection?
1: Oh, I think. I mean, I love the spades one. <laughs> I, I do. Okay. I, I love that. Uh, I I really liked. Um, there's the one where he's talking about Wu Tang, uh, the one about softness. Okay, I really like that one. Uh, the, the one about uh, what's name, Mary Clayton? Yes, I really love that. That one. was the one for yeah. me.
0: I was like, Holy shit! I listened yeah. to Gimme Shelter like 20 times in a row after that. Yeah. And I liked, I liked that one with the Beyonce one coming, I think right after, like mm-hmm. I like that one to punch. Mm-hmm. It's such a good collection. He is really quite talented. What are some books that are coming out that you're looking forward to reading?
1: I think that this is the problem of anybody that like enjoys reading yeah. it's just like, there's so many books all the time. Like I'm, I'm reading a collection of poetry by Nate Marshall called Finna right now. I'm reading
0: that right now too.
1: Yeah, I have like five yeah. more
0: poems. It's so
1: good. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Um, but there's so many different things that I've picked up. I I, uh, I picked up recently and want to get to at some point uh, Carmen Maria Machado's In the Dream House. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've, been, I've heard such great things about that. So I want to get to that at some point. Yeah, I I'm looking forward. Sorry, I, I know KSA sort of dominates everything, but I am looking forward to the reissue of Me Long Division. I want to get my hands on that and and read that one. Uh, I need to at some point. I need to get to reading my boy Marlon Peterson's uh, Bird Uncaged. Yeah, I, there's a lot of stuff. I'm still like kicking myself. I haven't read uh, The Yellow House by Sarah Broom. I need to get to that. Uh, There's a number of different things. I just read because I blurbed it, my friend Hermione Hobie, who has a novel coming out in July. Uh, It's called uh, Virtue, which I enjoyed. Yeah.
0: That's good. That's good. That's a lot. That's good. What's a book that you like to recommend to people?
1: Not going back to the well of uh, Kiese and and Desmond. You know, it it really depends to me. Like, I want to, I want to, like give people things I think that they'll enjoy. Um, yeah. and, and so I like sort of suss out like, what have you been reading and what, what kind of things are you really interested in? Um, but particularly for uh, people that have like, maybe been interested in my work uh and want to sort of take it a little further or like are interested in this like thinking through, but I still want something stylistic and like, you know, that's really readable and stuff. Uh, Tressie McMillan Cottom's uh, collection of essays thick. Uh, I think is oh, like, it's like, it's so good. And it's, and it's good because of like how deep of a well of knowledge Tressie is pulling from And you can Mm -hmm. see her enacting all of that work and all of that, the excavation of all of that on the page, but still rendered in this style that, like, you don't have to be a sociologist and I have a background in it to be able to understand. Like, she is very much like rooted in the essay form and the sort of searching and like going through all of these different parts. But like, as much as she writes in there that she's not doing personal essay, it's very, it is personal. It's like related back to. Personal experience that I think for me is something that like grounds a reader and makes you able to to relate back and like to to know the stories of other people uh, and to find yourself within that place and then to think more critically, think more deeply, think thicker and <laughs> is as she would yeah. put it, uh, you know, about like the some of the most prescient issues of our time. Uh, I think that it's a fantastic book to to recommend to people. It's-
0: so good she's so fucking smart it's annoying too it's like oh (laughs) you're just a fucking genius like how dare you even exist and be so brilliant like I get annoyed with people like that where I'm like how do you think like this? Because even her tweets are like so mm-hmm. complicated. And like, yeah. so, she's just so brilliant. She's like one yes. of our great thinkers, I feel. And That's I don't great. think she gets nearly enough credit for the work that she does and the way that she's able to package it for us normal, like, you <laughs> <Yes>. know, like,
1: <laughs> I feel like people
0: who think on her level are normally like, in academia only like they're doing mm-hmm. their shit over there and she's like no let me bring my brilliance to the people you're welcome in advance yeah. <laughs> like yes, I so just... have
1: the ability to bridge those things and like to make it readable for everybody and it. it's just like that's a skill that like I, I truly admire. yeah
0: a thousand percent are you the kind of person who sets reading goals for yourself
1: no uh I think I used to want to be one of those kind of people that's like I'm gonna read a- <laughs> four books a month or something. And I just really, like, I I have other things to do. Like, unfortunately, right? Like, I just <laughs> have, I have, like, i got my teacher now, which is something that's new. So I have to be, like, engaged with that. I have a life to live that, like, is going to include other people and, and stuff. So it's just, like, I don't have the time to, like, I have deadlines that I have right. to, and like, so the reading that I'll do most often is things that are aimed at, like, completing a project, completing an essay, a book, mm. or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, so I'm going to miss some stuff, and I'm not going to be right. able to just sort of read the thing that, like, I want to read for pleasure or personal edification all the time. So I don't want to disappoint myself by setting a reading right. goal and feel like I right. can't read it. <laughs>
0: Um, do you have things on your reading bucket list? And that question's sort of vague. Or your bookish bucket list, I guess it could be anything about
1: books. Oh man. I I want to read through all of Dostoevsky. And mm. it's because like I I read uh The Underground and it's like very much it's very influential in Ellison's Invisible Man uh and I, like Dostoevsky is one of those writers that a lot of the writers of, especially of yesteryears, were influenced by, and like, and like Baldwin read a lot of Dostoevsky, like, and I, the what little I've read from Dostoevsky, I've enjoyed, but then I just find myself sort of like reading things that trying to keep up with like mm-hmm. what's current, what, what new trends and things are in literature or what I'm drawn to by subject matter or whatever. But at some point I'm just like, there's a lot of stuff that just seems like it would be right up my alley. Like I want to read crime and punishment or I want to read, right. uh, you know, the gambler and these things that like, I feel like are right in line with everything that I like am thinking about now. Um but I just never feel like I have the time and headspace right. to be able to like dedicate to uh, that kind of project. So that's something that I do want to do at some point is sort of read through all of Dostoevsky.
0: Good for you. I read my first Russian novel for this podcast, Anna oh, yeah. Karenina. Um, I just finished it this month and I don't ever have to do that again. So <laughs> check, check plus for me. I did it. I'm done. It's over. Okay. Do you... Do you remember the last book that made you laugh?
1: you know it's it's weird, like even when I read something that I think is funny, I don't laugh that much when I read. that's fair. <laughs> uh, I don't laugh when I read either. I just don't I, I think there are people that can be funny on the page, uh but it just doesn't hit me and and make in a laugh out loud kind of way
0: same. What about uh, the last book that made you cry?
1: Ugh last book that made me cry well it's probably more for my my personal connection to the author but um uh bossy ikpiz uh i'm i'm lying but i'm telling the truth uh yeah just reading through her story just like and i i know bossy and known bossy for years and uh you know was there for you know we our friendship sort of like started in this very difficult time in her life and to sort of read everything preceding that. was just like this emotional trip that, that it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. this, this, this is hard.
0: <laughs> what about the last book where you felt like you learned a lot?
1: <sighs> well, you know, we are going to discuss this at some point, but the undying by Anne Boyer, uh, which is this memoir of her uh, diagnosis and then, subsequent treatment of breast cancer uh, and there are so many things in there that I just did not know and just would not have been made aware of at all like there's just a lot that I, yeah
0: I'm really so I have not read the book yet um, mm. you have I have not you picked it and normally when someone picks a book that I don't know I kind of will be like well what about this but you picked it and I was like fuck it let's go so I'm very <laughs> excited to talk about it but I am really going in knowing the title and that it has something to do with medicine and that you're excited about it. So like, I, I don't know. That's like, not really, normally I do like a huge endorsement on these kind of episodes being like, read the book with us, but I don't know, Michael Smart and he picked it. Like we're going to fucking do it.
1: It's a great, it really truly really is. Um, but in terms of learning a lot, there's so much to unpack there.
0: Oh my gosh. Also, I, the other thing I know about the book, is it won the
1: Pulitzer prize? Won the Pulitzer prize. Yeah.
0: Which I always tell people, I don't care about the Pulitzer Prize in fiction, but the Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction in the last like 10 years has not missed yet. Mm -hmm. Like it's been just like killer books, like the Attica book won. Mm -hmm. I think the um, Frederick Douglass book won. I think Evicted won or was was a finalist. Like it's just been really good books. So when I also saw that and I was like, well, they're, they've been doing great. Let's go <laughs> for it. <laughs> um, we're running out of time. So I'm going to ask you two more questions. One is, what is your problematic favorite book?
1: Problematic favorite book? Ooh. I don't know. It's probably more that it's problematic by virtue of like who the author is at this point, but there's still a place in my heart for Cornel West Race Matters. Um, mm. it's because it sort of came early in that journey that I was taking in which I was like politicized and radicalized I, I should say mm-hmm. and it was it was very much one of those things that was recommended at all all the time at that that point it's like about a I think I read it about a decade after it was released um, when I was 17 18 years old and Cornel West was mm-hmm. everywhere then, right? Like that was there in the era of sort of like Tavis Smiley and his state of the Black,
0: right? You know, right whatever. Right,
1: right. Like then he just tried out <laughs> all of these Black public intellectuals and they, they just like come on stage and really would, it, it's so weird to me now to think back on, but they really were just like performances. <laughs> uh, but right. Cornel was everywhere. And, uh, you know, that was one of those books that I think was formative, but I look at the ideas in there now and like "Eh." (laughs) some of this stuff just is is very dated and like very of its time (laughs) and not exactly like you know it just doesn't hold up and Cornel West is not a great writer (laughs) um he's like more of an orator than anything um but but I still think you know just because of the, the sort of trajectory that it helped me along to sort of think through some of the things that like I was suddenly interested in and didn't have a roadmap for. But also I think Cornel West evolved politically for better or worse, but I think also just like as a public, as a reading public, as a thinking public, we just were demanding more, mm-hmm. um, determine that like a lot of the issues that he was talking about there are just not just don't have the same primacy or importance, or just he was wrong. (laughs) Right, 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 right.
0: Okay, last one for you. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be?
1: (laughs) Oh, good old Joe. You know, I I think just given the the moment that we're in, uh, and what I would hope him to be thinking about and uh, in the ways I wanted to be thinking. I think Ibram Kendi's Stamp from the beginning mm-hmm. uh is a good place for someone to start just by understanding like how I mean it's partic- it's particularly focused on race obviously uh as it says it's a definitive history of racism <laughs> and, but I do think once you accept that the idea that this form of oppression has its roots and its ideas and its intellectuals and ways it's been discussed uh and the ways it's been enacted over time that have nothing to do with uh like boogeyman's that we've created right, right. like the, the idea that there's just like supremely hateful people that they these these ideas are born of those who are seeking power and if you can read through uh stamp from the beginning and understand that racist ideas like have their way of permeating without the function of like the sort of backwards white racist then you can start to hopefully apply that to everything else and not simply like write off everything as some personal bigotry uh right. that there are revered intellectuals that are involved in these processes uh and that once you once you're engaged in that type of thinking you got to rethink all of our systems hopefully right. like hopefully that's right. what that marks um so i think that that book is a real good primer for anyone to just sort of start that process of understanding that like hey we're not just looking at like trump voters with maga hats on and saying like that's right. the problem right like the we're, we'll we'll do these like little linguistic things or when we're we're like oh you know racism doesn't wear a hood anymore, like whatever. It's always worn suits. It's always been the right. people that right. have been most decorated, most revered, that have like been perpetuating right. the systems of harm in, in in across the world. So like once you can I would I would ask Joe Biden to, to read that and like hopefully like start thinking a little more critically about the, the American project. That's such a good answer.
0: That is the book i mean that book changed the way that i was Mm -hmm. thinking about things i think like even as someone who felt like i understood race i don't think that i um understood like how deliberate it was and i think i was of Mm -hmm. the opinion that people were ignorant and therefore they like created like racism and i didn't realize that like racism was the thing and then they created like the ignorance like i think that that's really the thing about the book that changed changed me
1: yeah um, no, absolutely. that's a good pick
0: yeah. um well michael thank you so much for being t- here today you're gonna be back let me pull up the date i'm not prepared as usual awesome. i never have the dates in my head um michael will be back on june 30th to discuss the undying with us. Um, June has five Wednesdays so you guys have plenty of time to read it and uh, it's apparently good the Pulitzer people Mm -hmm. think it's good and more importantly Michael thinks it's good so if it's bad guess who we get to blame get your pens out people slide in those DMs let's get real rude. I'm just kidding if any of you harshly DM Michael I will find you and harshly DM you back okay Um. And everybody go and get Stakes is High. I've listened to the audiobook. Michael reads it. It's fantastic. It's also a slim book full of just good shit. So go read it. Don't be an idiot. Like, just read the book. Trust me, okay? I'm pushing hard on this one, and I don't always do this, and this is a sign it is that good. I have yet to recommend it, and anyone tell me that they were like, this is dumb and a waste of my time. And it won the fucking Kirkus Prize, so it's legit also.
1: Thank you so much. It's really, it's really, very kind of you. It is slim. Like I didn't write a whole lot. So there's, you can, you can finish it pretty quickly. Um, thank you so much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Michael for being my guest. Our June book club pick is The Undying, A Meditation on Modern Illness by Anne Boyer. We will discuss the book on Wednesday, June 30th with Michael Denzel-Smith. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. If you want to join The Stacks Pack over on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash thestacks. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks pod on Instagram and at TheStacksPod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, TheStacksPodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, And our theme music is from Tagirajas. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.